Welcome to Movies Are Life. I'm your host, Nathan Chandler. I love you, and let's see if you love me after this review of the Peacock original documentary, I Love You, You Hate Me, which explores the world of Barney the Dinosaur. But before we dive into our conversation, I wanted to welcome our guest and real-life documentary filmmaker, Chris Scott. Hi, Chris. How's it going? Hi, Nathan. How are you doing? Doing good. I was going to give a little background on how we know each other. We both attended Baylor University at the same time. We kind of ran around uh, some social circles. And before I hit record, we were talking a little bit about your place of residency, which is uh, Las Vegas. So you were giving me a little bit of history about the uh, air traffic system at Las Vegas. Yeah. You know, a lot of people, like, since COVID, um, Hollywood has disbanded. Uh, across the United States. And so we're always on Zoom calls. And when people see that I'm Zooming in from Las Vegas, they're like, why Las Vegas? I'm like, why not Las Vegas? I've been here for 13 years uh, when I moved out here and realized that I can both gamble on basketball and and buy whiskey at Walgreens at any time of the day. Uh, And the fact that our airport is like six minutes from my house like, I'm like, why not live in Las Vegas? And you can get to anywhere from Harry Reid International Airport. Uh, there's a direct flight. I'm going to Jacksonville tomorrow. There's a direct flight. Um, so the air travel is 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 one of my biggest reasons why I live in Las Vegas. One of the weirdest things, I know you like movies, and one of the weirdest things about the movie Con Air, that beautiful uh, movie that was totally Oscar snubbed, uh, <laughs> that the one of the last scenes of that that movie was they they landed the Con Air plane on the Las Vegas Strip, and it's funny because our airport is like 100 yards from the Strip. Like it could have been a much more convenient landing had you looked just 30 degrees to your right, <laughs> and you could have had this big big runway to land on. But they landed on the Las Vegas Strip. That's when I was done with Con Air Well, I think it's really, <laughs> you know, it, it just there's something about a you know airport that doesn't uh, doesn't provide the perfect background to how do I live without you? You know, by Trisha Yearwood. Unlike the you know the Strip at Vegas, you know, it's just that that country song at the end just to tie up all the emotional uh, baggage that's going on. You know, it yeah, just it, wouldn't it wouldn't be the same. Yeah, it, it calls for wreckage in front of the Bellagio, right? It, <laughs> it does. So, it's cinematic genius, by the way. <laughs> cinematic genius. So we know each other, but I mean, I would say it's fair to say, you know, just like a lot of your college buddies, you know, you go live your lives and yeah, you're connected, uh, you know, through social media somewhat, but you may or may not. Uh, see what that person is doing depending on the algorithm of everything and so all of a sudden like i'm a big uh, hbo max subscriber and um you know so i'm always seeing what's new and so i saw this documentary class action park and i I see the name of the director and i was like wait that name sounds real familiar so i jump on social media look you up and see that you've directed this movie and i was like wait how you know almost like how did how did you get to that point because i know you were more kind of uh focused on uh, politics like after school how how did you get into filmmaking well i uh after baylor i i went to dc 
and tried to climb the DC ladder. It just didn't work out. Like I did not fit in in DC. Um, no girls liked me in DC. Uh, and then I said, you know what? If girls don't like me doing politics, they're they're definitely gonna like me if I go to seminary. Uh, and so I went to seminary, went to Princeton Seminary, started an underground satirical newspaper that they absolutely hated. I uh, was asked to leave seminary. And I came out to Vegas to work on a on a political campaign. Senator Harry Reid, who was the majority leader at the time, RIP Uncle Harry. Um, and I, I I moved out here to Vegas with just like directionless, really. I was going to do this campaign for six months. And after the campaign was over with, I said, there's something about this town that fits sort of my worldview. And it's, it has nothing to do with the gambling and the drinking. It had everything to do with if you have great ideas, this city will back you. They don't yeah. care what school you went to. They don't care who your parents were. They never tell you to pay your dues like they did in Washington, D.C. If you have a great idea, they will back you. I mean, someone thought, hey, let's build a hotel shaped like the Apple Tower. That was the idea pitched in a meeting, and it was built. And so I was like, I have to stay here. And so I got a job at a creative agency, uh, R&R Partners. They're the, the firm that came up with the slogan, what happens here stays here. And I would begin working as a creative on that account. And one day I was like, you know what? I want to open my own creative agency. And I did. And my first client was a buddy from Baylor. His dad, uh, Bill Broyles, down in Shreveport, Louisiana, uh, they were trying to recruit uh, C-suite type executives for their oil company over in Shreveport. They asked me to do like this propaganda film on Shreveport. And I said, can you do films? I was like, yes. And I immediately Googled, how do I make a film? <laughs> uh, I needed the money. And so I told them that I could make it. And so they wanted this a film that like showed white people playing Frisbee, white people walking their dogs, white people go to Starbucks. Like, you know, those type of propaganda videos to show like, this is how great white people live in Shreveport. Well, I, <laughs> I started doing research on Shreveport and figured out, that Martin Luther King, the first time he ever recorded the phrase free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, I'm free at last, was at a Baptist church in 1953 in Shreveport, Louisiana. And then I discovered that the first time Elvis Presley was on the air was on the Louisiana Hayride in 1958 to the Municipal Auditorium in Shreveport, Louisiana. And I was like, this is crazy history. Wow. And I went back to them. I said, I think we can make more than a propaganda film here. Let's make a documentary about Shreveport. And so they backed me. God bless them. We did a four-episode documentary series on the history of Shreveport. We called it The Shape of Shreveport. And that next year, we won the Documentary of the Year by the Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities. And I was like, okay, I make documentaries now. And so I've been feeding myself uh, and getting all the girls uh doing documentaries. Seminary couldn't do it. Politics couldn't do it. But I found my true love uh, making documentaries. That 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 is that is so cool. Yeah. And it, kind of funny, you know, I mean, we always sort of also have uh, kind of East Texas ties. And I live, you know, I grew up in Longview, Texas, which just was an hour west of Shreveport, Louisiana. And, and my, so, mom, my mom taught school in LISD for like 30 years. That's crazy. I didn't know that. Yeah, where elementary? 
Oh wow, that's crazy. Yeah, man, I, that that's nuts. That's that that's very cool because I I personally didn't know that history of Shreveport either. And so, are you pine tree or Longview? Uh, I went to Longview High School. Okay, go Lobos. Yeah, I'm a Longview Lobo. <laughs> so, well, I I, I definitely. You know uh, the the stuff you've made and uh, produced and directed, I, it, it, we've loved it. And I uh, we threw on a class action part one night and thoroughly enjoyed it. And so is uh, that was a that was a great documentary. But well, well thank well, you. When, when let me know when you ever discuss that on the show. I'll call in. Yeah, that'd be awesome. I would love. Yeah, I would love to revisit because that was great. Because just like you just mentioned about. Maybe, maybe, uh, I don't know, hidden talent is kind of the talent that's at the forefront is finding stories about, you know, things not a lot of people know, you know, know about. And that's kind of how what that water park was in uh, the New Jersey area. It was like, I was like, how, how I've never heard of a upside down water slide. <laughs> you know, I've never so. heard of it either. And a buddy of <laughs> mine, a journalist, I was writing for Popular Mechanics, told me about it. And he goes, there should be a documentary done about it. And we got together, Seth Porges. Uh, we got together and we made the documentary, and 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 that documentary, similar to the one that we're going to be talking about tonight, uh, the culprits, the villains um, of that documentary were not people. It was the time period. The time mm -hmm. period allowed you to build a slide that went in a complete loop. It allowed you to. Uh, build a a rapids that you had to wear helmets and so you wouldn't <laughs> get the uh the, the the time period the 90s allowed you uh to have a tarzan swing that dumped you out in freezing cold mountain water where three people had heart attacks and died after hitting the water uh the people who designed the park were not the villains it was the time period the mm -hmm. 90s and uh that's one of the things that i got from this documentary as well that uh, Barney came in a time where, like, people, I, I think white angst was really starting to build up. And yeah. you have this smiling, laughing character telling everybody to love each other. And just people were not ready to, to love at that time period. <laughs> so we'll, we'll get into that later. But, yeah, the uh, uh, you, you start doing these, these projects and you realize who the real villains and who the real victims are. <laughs> Right, right. And I, I hope you didn't mind that I uh, threw a Barney documentary your way, but I had seen it just I before we even started chatting. And um, I was like, oh, I, I'm, I'm kind of interested in I'm kind of interested in that to see what that is. And then as we were talking, I just not that I think this is even act, actually like your film, but it, what you had just mentioned, it kind of taps into that uh, <laughs> that, that angst that was happening at that time. And so, uh, yeah. Um, so this is based on the Barney television, uh, series. And if you are of a certain age, Barney does spark an emotion within you, good or bad, <laughs> which this, uh, film explores. And I don't know how you feel. I, I keep calling it a film. Um, but on Peacock, it's labeled as a TV miniseries because it's cut up into two episodes. But I think the only reason that's the case is just so Peacock could interweave commercials within it. I, I don't know how it's, what it's you think absolutely. about that. Here's 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 some insider info. Um like series uh are, are hot right now because people want you these streamers want you to binge uh 
binge their shows. I mean, there's documentaries that should have been an hour and a half long, end up being 10 episodes. And you're like, okay, I'm not yeah. going to mention which ones because I'm working with people who worked on it. Um, but uh, yes, that was a money grab. This should have been an hour and a half documentary, two hours at most. Uh, but uh, but everybody needs to eat. So those, <laughs> those and where do I send my receipt? Because I had to register for Peacock. Oh Peacock well, <laughs> watch the documentary. So I'm going to send that to you. You can send it to yeah, me over here. You can send it to me, but I can I can uh, I can give you some suggestions while you at least have it uh, for a month. <laughs> okay, some I other will, things you yeah, can watch yeah, for the next thirty days. Give me some good stuff. <laughs> Uh, or you know, uh, you could always binge the office or Saturday Night Live episodes, you know, as well. But and, and let me just say this: Peacock is a fine streamer with fine content, and I say that because uh, we're in talks with two projects with Peacock right now. <laughs> so, uh, throw all the commercials onto my project if you want to. <laughs> well, uh, I love you. You hate me. It focuses on the cultural impact of Barney and the Don Dinosaur, although it gives some time uh, to its history and the show uh, and the mechanics of the show a little bit. It it's more focused on why, as we've talked about, why they react the way they do to Barney. Uh, so, Chris, my question is to you is what's your visceral reaction to Barney the Dinosaur? <laughs> I had young, a younger brother and sister. And they loved Barney. Okay. And the the songs just permeate the brain. And you want to hate Barney, but at the same time, you, you couldn't take your eyes off of Barney. Like, why are these songs uh, like so ingrained? We had a, a person on my school bus. His name was Ricky and we used to call him Ricky Raccoon and sing that song from Barney, Ricky Raccoon. <laughs> and one day he gets on the bus and a guy in Courtney jumps up and goes, Ricky Raccoon, Rick, 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 Ricky, Ricky Raccoon. And Ricky gave this guy the worst beating I've ever seen oh, in, in my entire life. And that was the last day Ricky Raccoon was song on bus number two in the Chapel Hill Independent School District. Uh, but just the, the visceral reaction to Barney and his message of love and hugging. And I don't think it would work now because I think now it would just be creepy. Yeah. Yeah. It would. Yeah. I, I agree with you. <laughs> uh, yeah. And like, I, I was, um, I was a little torn, uh, with this documentary. I, I felt there was, um, some things going on I, I didn't like that they played into, but I, I liked what they were going for because it was interesting that this creator, Cheryl Leach, created the show, which I'm sure there was all sorts of you know children content out there. But the fact that she really built the show um, from the ground up and you know out of <laughs> Texas, out of Allen, Texas, uh, outside of, of Dallas. Allen, Texas. Allen, Texas. <laughs> Texas. But so I thought it was a neat story in that sense of just like, you know, that's that's a hard thing, you know, to come come up with and build up. So I was interested in that. Um but yeah, the like I think my <laughs> relationship, I um that wasn't I was probably just more aware, you know, our age, we were a little older to even, you know, consume <laughs> that product. So, and with the angst going around us, it was easy just to hate like Barney, um, 
<laughs> just because it was Barney. But yeah, it really like when they talked in the documentary and it was a very good point of the fact that Barney just had a constant emotion versus like other things or other characters you see like in Sesame Street where, you know, uh, Bert and Ernie have emotions that like go right. up and, and down. There's a grouch and <laughs> Cookie Monster could possibly be on cocaine. Like it's, <laughs> it, it, you have different emotions. Uh, in the Sesame Street that 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 mirrored real life, uh, but you tuned in to Barney, and you know that the next thirty minutes of your life was going to be immersed in sort of this dreamlike world of this happiness, and you have to go back to your world uh, as being a parent. You have to go back to your world of screaming kids before iPads and. <laughs> internet uh like what did you do how did you parent back then like, yeah yeah um, but for 30 minutes you got that respite from screaming kids and and your life you can go get white wine drunk in the in the kitchen <laughs> while the kids like, watch barney uh yeah. that those were the times man <laughs> well and also uh, i've said this in other podcasts i mean it was a lot different back then, right? Uh, because, you know, you had the physical copy of the VHS, one which you probably bought. So you made some kind of decision of like, I'm going to choose this version of the Barney tape versus the other uh, tales or adventures that might be out there versus to the streaming content of today where, you know, um, <laughs> I mean, I think every parent gets trapped with uh, content that is not their favorite. I mean, there's certain shows I know uh, my girls watch at a younger age that I couldn't stand, but there's so much, there's so many options there now. Like it's easier to find content that is kind of, that won't drive you insane, <laughs> that won't drive you, you know, uh, to the wine. And so, you know, it's a little bit like, I mean, and once you find something your kid likes, you latch onto that. And if it was Barney, you know, hold on, it's going to be a rough uh, couple. <laughs> it's going to be a rough couple of years. <laughs> and, and I imagine, I, I can't imagine Barney living uh, in the internet age. Do you think that the, he would have caught on if, 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 like, say, Barney first premiered on a streamer, uh, first appeared online? Uh, in YouTube clips, uh, easily digestible in two-minute videos. I don't think so. I think Barney was the solution mm -hmm. uh, to exhausted parents, right? Um, because you did not have the internet, and 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 I'm not a parent, so I don't know. But I but imagine I I, I COVID was the most delightful year of my life. Um, I just got to stay inside, uh, eat and cook, and walk along a deserted strip in the evenings. But I had friends who had these young kids at home, and they were all exhausted, just mentally, spiritually, physically exhausted, uh, trying to entertain their children. And then... You go 20 years before this, you have this Barney character come along, and Barney is the answer for exhausted parents everywhere. Uh, <laughs> because it, you finally had something on this magical VHS tape that could keep your child's attention. Uh, and for that, I don't understand why it, it, it makes sense why 
white men hated Barney. Uh, but while white mothers absolutely loved Barney, mm -hmm. uh, it made it made it made total sense. Because this is a this uh, this may be the advent of the TV raising your children, or at least keeping them quiet. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It was funny. Whit, uh, Whitney, my wife, she didn't uh, watch this with me, but kind of passed in and out uh, while we were watching it. And it was funny because she stopped and uh, she went to Baylor as well. And she did a lot of nannying back then. And it was funny because she would she would catch some of the now adults who are the kids on the show, you know. And Whitney was like, oh, my gosh, uh, I remember that. Per you know, because that was like when she nannied, you know, Barney was like the go to tape yes. or whatever. And so it was funny that she, I, you know, I didn't really recognize, you know, those those kids uh or actors uh but she definitely like you know had a visceral reaction to like oh my gosh they're you know they're all grown up now but yeah to answer your question i i think uh i think you're right i i don't know you know it the company um the brand of barney definitely had a grassroots uh swell to it you know and i think you're right i i think if the internet existed right when barney came out um i i don't think it would be that big of a hit and i mean we we've been talking well, about that proprietary uh they were able to make it proprietary because they they had a handle on the distribution of it like mm -hmm. get a clip of barney and then throw it on the internet you had to purchase the vhs mm -hmm. uh, before it went on pbs brilliant uh brilliant uh been able to leverage uh the lack of technology and and still turn it into a brand that went viral uh just by word of mouth and i mean just it's, it's a brilliant concept but even even more brilliant than the concept of barney is the it's the production of this documentary i have been like it called class action park we thought we had andy mulvihill uh, Gene Mulvihill's son, and Gene Mulvihill is the proprietor of, of class of Action Park. He's the one who dreamt dreamt up these wacky slides and attractions, and he gave you everything that you asked for. It a, a dangerous water park, and it cost you ten bucks to get in. We thought we were going to get Andy Mulvihill the son, and he was working with us on developing it. And at the last minute, he goes, "I'm not doing it." Mm -hmm. We were devastated. Yeah. Completely devastating. We thought we had lost this huge voice uh, in telling the real story. And we found out that that was liberating for us. Mm -hmm. Because after Andy Mulvihill pulled out, we went searching for a family whose child had been killed in the park. And had Andy, had, had Andy been a part of that film, he would have squashed that altogether. Mm -hmm. But because he dropped out, we were able to take more creative license in what we told. We were able to 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 shed more light on some of the nefarious things that were going on. Plus, we didn't have the Mobile Hill family with their fingerprints on this documentary. Uh, and so we were able to tell the real story. And it was a more authentic story. So hats off to Thomas Avalon, uh, the director of this documentary, because I'm pretty sure they reached out. Mm -hmm. uh, to uh what's her name again yeah, cheryl leach yeah cheryl leach i'm sure they reached out to her several times and 
in my experiences, they'll talk with you, they'll go back and forth, they'll pray about it, some say, then they'll then they'll, they'll say, I prayed about it and, and God doesn't want me to do that, which I had a pastor in Ben Rouge tell me once. And and when they say God told me not to do it, it means their lawyers told them not to do it. Uh, <laughs> and so him being able to still weave this story and to still have people to come and speak very candidly, both about their time and about the the the, the back dealings of this and to both love Cheryl, but to be truthful about the Cheryl universe, uh, that was that was to 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 do this without the lead. I believe they were able to be more open with storylines, mm -hmm. more more notably the storyline about the son who shot his uh, her son who shot his neighbor. I'm pretty sure had Cheryl been involved in this documentary she would not have commented on that and they wouldn't you would not have known that that happened with patrick the son yeah yeah and that was one thing that i thought was an important uh part of this whole story but also that kind of rubbed me the wrong way about it because um it, they kind of leaned into that you know barney was the sole reason for him you know essentially shooting his neighbor with intent to kill him and i but then they kind of almost <laughs> were like and his dad dealt with depression depression and then he committed suicide and there are all these other little things but yeah it was barney that drove him to this and that yeah, yeah, the, it was there were there were aspects of this documentary that i thought really played into sir i thought on the surface i didn't mind them saying that like I didn't mind them saying that um, David Joyner, who was, you know, essentially Barney, he was the guy in the costume, you know, is this tantric energy healer. I, I didn't mind that being part of the story, but in these little segments, they would really build up this tension. Like this was a huge thing. And then it would kind of, kind of like they would gloss over it. You know, yeah. there were that, that there were parts of that, that I thought was uneven, but as you were talking about this kind of mini series aspect, I think that, you know, they have to build up the, uh, the excitement to the commercial break, you know, and then they quickly resolved, <laughs> resolved the thing. And I, I, I would have thought the, the, the better storyline when you calculate the tragedies of of Barney and the Barney universe, I thought the more interesting and the more compelling track would have been to dive into the husband's depression. Uh, they, they begin to set up Patrick very early on in the first episode. Yeah, really, brilliantly set it up, uh, asking about who he was and how he how he grew up. I knew there they were setting us up for a plot twist with him. But man, uh, wouldn't that have been interesting to 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 dig into? Like, did the husband resent Barney? Did I mean it made him millionaires? Did he resent his wife for being the successful one in the family? And and what drove him uh, to eventually take his own life? They were just like, and he took his own life. Period. And and that was it. I was like, what? I need what? more yeah. of that. I need yeah. more of that. What happened? <laughs> It was way more interested in Patrick shooting his neighbor and going to jail for five years and then coming out and leading a, a healthy lifestyle afterwards with his wife and kids. Uh, I would have I would have loved to have 
explored more uh, into the uh, into the psyche of the husband. Yeah, yeah, I felt like they kind of yada yada the mental health aspects of this family, and to me, I felt like that was uh, not fair uh, to the family, and um, I I kind of had almost issue with. Um, it's almost like when, it, you know, something goes down in the neighborhood and then they interview like a neighbor who lives like several blocks down and they talk as if they knew this person really well. That's mm-hmm. kind of how I felt was like, you know, these people spent time with Patrick 25 years ago and now they're trying to, to diagnose what he did. And to me, I, it, that just kind of rubbed me the wrong way, you know, a little bit, not that it doesn't play into the story, but to, you know, it's, it, it was quickly kind of put aside that like Barney, the purple dinosaur was the reason for this. And it sounded like there was a whole lot more going on. And I, I just, I didn't feel like that was fair to the Leach family, but uh, I might be, uh, a little more sensitive to that than <laughs> other people, but yeah. Well, um, in in making movies, there are four steps or four iterations. There's the the movie you pitch to the network. Uh, there's the movie you shoot. Uh, there's the movie you edit, <laughs> and then there's the movie that the network uh, has you redo. Right. And, uh, there's no telling what what was squashed by the network, what was the creative director, what was the creative direction of the director. Um, but it, it's a it, it's weird things that the network will come in and say we can't talk about mental health or we can't use mm. the word you know suicide, um, or we or 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 delving into suicide is too dark. For the Peacock Network, like mm-hmm. there's no telling um, why that wasn't explored, right? Um, and 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 the last iteration, the the notes from the network iteration of your film, is the most. I say not scary, but awaiting your network notes is is really scary because. You see a vision, you know the story, you know why you're telling it, and then the network can come in and say, "Hey, cut that!" And it's the heart of your whole film, right? Yeah. Uh, fortunately, uh, HBO was HBO Max. They were great partners in Class Action Park. They wanted us to dial more into the sort of the the the, the psyche of the times, the psyche of the, the water park owners, uh, but. Yeah, you just you never know what what Thomas, the director, set out to make, and what he was actually allowed to air, and that yeah. could be very frustrating. That process. Oh yeah, no, it, yeah, and that completely makes sense. And one thing I was actually really impressed uh, with this uh, project was the, and I think you can uh, understand this. I haven't a lot of my background has been documentary type of videos, but you know, they would be very short form, like three minutes versus like a feature length film. But the thing that stood out to me was the number of people that they interviewed for this, but not even so much that, but the fact that they, um, you got a good sense of who the person was and their story and their arc in a very short amount of time. And I was really impressed by that because, 
you know, from the get go, I'm like, okay, oh, oh, that's the guy who's the voice of Barney. You know, <laughs> uh, that's that's the composer. Uh, they did a really good job with a lot of people, but you, you know, they did very good setting up with, you know, the lower thirds and everything where uh, sometimes with documentaries you have, I think you can have too many people involved, too many voices. And this one was one. Now, sometimes I, I don't know if we needed the Jerry Springer producer on there, but you know, he was definitely a character. So I see, <laughs> see why he was on there, but I thought, you know, in a two hour time frame, as you mentioned, probably this would have been better off being an hour and a half. But in that I was, I was really impressed that, you know, I was like, oh, they 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 really did their di diligence <laughs> seeking all these yeah, people and that, out. And that's just a great relationship between director and editor mm -hmm. um, and, and, and developing story. In documentary filmmaking, you can have the greatest story in the world, but if you have bland characters telling it, it just doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And so they they had a good story, but they also chose good characters. And they chose characters that made you think about that time period and you know how they how they wrapped it up at the end. What what is the moral of this story? And each of these characters were able to to identify what the larger tropes were uh, that the movie was trying, or what the whole Barney universe uh, was about. And looking back in hindsight, so the, the, they had a very colorful cast. And, and and I say that pun intended because when I grew up, I was always told that the guy who played Barney was black. Uh, but this was also told to me by like an uncle who thought everything was invented by black people uh, <laughs> and that every superhero was black. Uh, and we didn't have, I, I couldn't go to the computer and look up, is Barney black? I just always heard that he was black, and and sure enough, like it wasn't confirmed. I was I was forty one years old tonight when it was confirmed to me that the person who played Barney was black. <laughs> yeah, how, how how was that moment for you? Ah <laughs> uh, man, I I almost texted him and like, well, I'd be dead. <laughs> you were you were wrong about the inventor of the traffic light being black, but you were dead on about <laughs> Barney. Yeah. Being black. <laughs> yeah. I, I appreciated the segment too, where they talk a little bit about uh, you know, the diverse cast that they had of young actors and kind of what that meant to them in that moment. And uh I know uh I, I, I thought uh, I, I forgot what her name was, but um in particular that they didn't even just lump her with a certain race but they're like this is where i'm from this is <laughs> you know my culture and stuff like that and so i appreciate that they got that aspect and that's kind of almost like regardless of how you feel about barney the show it really did feel like you know, cheryl leach and uh the creators of this really had not that you could have bad intentions with the children's series but you know you really kind of it may be exploited yeah the uh diverse children, their their culture could be uh, muted. Mm -hmm. uh, and another thing, you know, I, I I grew up in East Texas, like population 533, a little town called New Chapel Hill. Um, and I believe the person who invented racism is from Chapel Hill, like, <laughs> like Jebediah racist. Uh, 
born and raised in New Chapel Hill, Texas. So I was always taught to to assume everything has a racist agenda to it uh, until proven otherwise. And even when it was proven otherwise, it's still probably racist. <laughs> and so when there's certain tropes that you hear that make you go, okay, that's racist. One is American flag, anything. This is America. We love America. We love our country. That's the first racist red flag. Barney didn't have that. But the the other one that catches uh, the ear and the attention of someone who's looking for subtle racist cues is I'm of a Christian background, uh, Allen, Texas. Uh, <laughs> you, you, you think this is a, a white evangelical neighborhood and their their bent to their slant is going to be indoctrinating families into this is white culture. This is this is the culture that we should all be allegiant to. And so I was waiting for that moment in this documentary to be like, ah, I knew this shit was racist, uh, <laughs> but it just never happened. Like Cheryl Leach actually turned out to be a decent human being, uh, where they allowed. Uh, the little Asian girl uh, to sing the happy birthday song in her native mm -hmm. language uh, that they raved about uh, the black man who played the Barney costume in his athletic skills and his personality and the bigness of who he was and uh, the little black kids who were on the show uh, seemed to be treated you know, with, with, in their culture with sort of this decency and respect. And coming from a, a white lady in the suburbs of Dallas, Allen, Texas, and Allen probably at that time was not Allen today. No. Allen today has a school district that spent $80 million on a football stadium. <laughs> uh, very affluent, very white, very evangelical. But imagine Allen back in the 1990s, just this, this neighborhood full of white families who have fled uh, Dallas uh, to, to raise their children in sort of this, 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 this crime-free, quote, uh, neighborhood. You would think a woman coming from that and saying, we have, a, we have Christian values. You think, what do you think? Carrot. Oh, this is going to be a carrot. It's going to be a carrot. <laughs> Uh, but man, I was I was I was sh I was shaken uh, to my own ignorant ignorances and prejudices when Shirley Schiff turned out to be just a a decent person uh, <laughs> who made a TV show that espoused decent virtues. Uh, so uh, apologies to Cheryl for for coming in with with a hammer in my hand. <laughs> well, and I think that the one thing that this documentary um, does well, you know, obviously explores, um, you know, hate and the hate culture. And um, in particular, uh, the <laughs> the guys, uh, Rob, uh, I'm not sure how to say his last name, Curran, Curran, but he was the one who started the I Hate Barney Secret Society. Uh, and then um, there was also another guy. Oh, yeah. Sean Breen, uh, who started the Jihad to Destroy Barney. Those guys like pop up on screen. And I mean, I just like uh, their attitudes of life, what their attention was with the stuff. I mean, 
<laughs> hate and myself got like flared up like towards them. And then the documentary did a really good job of at the end, kind of humanizing them a little bit. And you see another side of them. And yeah, I, but, uh, yeah, he, one, one of them was just a drunk. He was just a mean <laughs> drunk. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and having to deal with those issues and not just reject his, his anger at the world toward a, a children's character, uh, not to bring in politics in this, but I think the same DNA exists that uh, the Washington Post did a background on the people who have been arrested at the January 6th uh, storming of the Capitol. And turns out a lot of them were, the vast majority were in deep financial trouble, uh, in debt up to their wazoo. Uh, and that led them to believe that the country wasn't going in their direction, right? So we, we must storm it. Storming this capital is going to get my credit cards paid off or whatnot. But you really start to dig, when you start to, to dig in deeper into the psychosis of these people, you realize that the problems with their outward expression of anger is coming from a very inward place of hurt. And so the, the Barney hater, who confesses at the end, I was just a mean drunk. And now I've seen the light. Uh, what what a, I won't say what a character arc, but but what a, but 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 you're like, yeah, I get it. Like you were just well, how I was quick to judge. I just thought the the it did a really good job on me. Because it was talking about this hate culture, how quick we are just to hate on things, have opinions on things. And so, and, you know, who knows, that guy might still have tendencies in life that I don't agree with and I don't like. But I realized in myself, I was quick to just hate on those guys. Mm -hmm. Just like like a snap like that. And they did a good job of turning that, of going like, what, what, what you know, almost like, what did that, what did that, what did you get out of by, you know, having that reaction, you know, and it, it doesn't really benefit uh anybody you know really so yeah but um uh we we, we probably uh have talked on and on about uh, a movie about barney more than i had uh, ever thought of but i have a segment on the podcast called moving musings and these are questions i think of while watching that i'm going to throw out to you movie musings in it they talked a little bit about um, you know, the characters, the children's shows that we really connect to and uh, grew up loving. Uh, what what was a show or a character that you like just have a fond memory of? Oh, man, I really loved uh, Oscar the Grouch <laughs> from Sesame Street because growing up he mirrored a lot of of what i knew i was poor and angry uh, uh yeah i liked oscar the grouch i, I really liked lavar burton's character on reading rainbow you guys remember reading rainbow oh yeah of course yeah, yeah butterfly in the sky yeah <laughs> this high take a look he's in a book Reading Rainbow. <laughs> so I really love LeVar Burton because in those days, looking up and seeing a black guy on a children's show was like like Jackie Robinson in baseball. And <laughs> I, I, we, I really loved um, I really loved Reading Rainbow. There was a, a weird show that came on after Reading Rainbow called Zoobly Zoo. I know the theme song of that too. <laughs> Zoobly Zoo. 
so yeah, I really, I, I'll, I'll, I'll settle on LeVar Burton in reading Rainbow. Yeah, no, that's, yeah, that's a good one. Uh, yeah, that, I mean, it's like, you know, I don't remember like super like specifics of the show itself, but uh, watching that show, I just always remember having a hint of jealousy towards the kids that get to talk about the book they love. And it's like, how can I get on that show? <laughs> and how do I get on that show and meet LeVar Burton? He seems so cool. But uh, LeVar Burton is cool. Yeah, he is cool. Um, all right. The second question I have for you is, so I, I kind of say this in, oh, well, you, you could take it jokingly or not, but what what is something that you love to hate or love to bash on? So we've all been guilty of, you know, there might be a show out there. There might be a certain something, but. What's something you can just easily uh, dive into? I mean, you're a big, you're a big Baylor, you know, fan. Obviously, is there, you know, like a school you just can just rip into? Well, yeah, everyone hates UT, but that's easy. <laughs> uh, everyone hates University of Texas. Everyone hates OU where you are. <laughs> that's, that's easy. But uh, things I love to hate. All right, I have a middle school teacher on Facebook who has turned into a, like a low-key racist. Um, the thing she posts, the sort of dog whistle that she uses about crime and criminals. Uh, she sits on a school board in East Texas now. Oh, good. Um, I, I, whenever she posts something, I'm like, I should delete this. I'm sick of like reading this shit, <laughs> it stopped. I cannot delete her because the next statement, the next post is just as absurd as the, the one before. And they're like in 30 minute intervals uh, and where I should uh, delete that person as a friend, I've grown to love checking in on her lunacy. <laughs> It just it gives you a it gives you a different perspective, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's but, a nice way of putting it. Yeah, it gives you a different perspective of me. <laughs> uh, well, another. I'm not a better person than that. But I'm not. <laughs> um, uh, uh, the last question I have for you in this segment is, um, you know, it it almost really triggered me where uh, it threw up the image of signing on to AOL and the lovely sounds uh, of a modem. And so that made me think of like, what's your, uh, one of your earliest member uh, memories of the internet and it becoming a thing? Oh man. Uh, my friend Gina Malone, her dad, uh, they were the first people I knew with the internet. Like even before our school district got the internet, like they got the internet in like February in our entire school district got the internet like four years later. Um, and I remember Yahoo was, when you, you logged on, it, it took you straight to Yahoo. And I remember that. But one of my, my most vivid memories was the chat rooms. Like, I'm like 17 when I'm, I'm really understanding the internet in earnest and getting to chat with like, you know, girls in the next town, and I didn't have a car at that time, uh, and so it opened up my world, right? <laughs> like, 
Wait, what? They have a Walmart in the next town over? What? <laughs> uh, this can't be. Um, I remember I met a girl on the internet. It was my first little online girlfriend and crush, right? This is before you can send pictures or you really knew people's real names, you know. Uh, and I remember uh, there's a hamburger chain for those who are are listing outside of the, the Southwest region, Whataburger. Uh, it's open 24 hours. And I remember getting a ride from my cousin uh, to Whataburger uh, to meet Stardust 1987 uh, <laughs> at the Whataburger on the loop at Highway 31 in Tyler, Texas. And uh, I know exactly where that's at. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I went and met her. And she 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 dressed like Punky Brewster. She had like two different color shoes on. Her hair was dyed. Uh, uh, she didn't talk much. Uh, it was weird, uh, but it was exhilarating. Like this internet. Like, this is this is gonna catch on. <laughs> this is gonna catch on. That's my early memories of the internet. Like, yeah, meeting uh, meeting her at the Waterbird. <laughs> <laughs> well, a couple of things. It made me think seeing the AOL image was just the constant uh, disc that you would get in the mail. Uh, and I'm not even sure what they would do, but it was like giving you a certain number of hours on AOL, you know, without, I guess, paying into account. I don't even remember. They often would become, you know, uh, coasters, I think, <laughs> for your yeah. and stuff. But um, I, I like, I, so, I mean, obviously the internet, existed before we got to Baylor, but our freshman year, that was the first time that like the internet, like it was, especially the dorms, the speed of it was like unheard of uh, those days. And uh, one of my roommates, he was really, and I, I don't think he would mind me saying this. He was a computer nerd. Like he got this world. And I remember he was set up my AOL chat name and, uh, and, Still, somehow this chat like he was just setting it up for me. I didn't know what he was doing, and he made my <laughs> he made my AOL screen name Nate Dog is with a Z crazy K R A Z Y, and I hated it. So fitting, and, yeah, so fitting. And that name, I, I bet you could uh, interview a lot of people uh, from college, and some people will still go, "Hey, Nate Dog is crazy." I'm like, "Oh my gosh!" Uh, but anyway, and well, remember, remember, Nate. That's how we would communicate in college. Like, send, oh yeah, send someone an AOL message. We didn't have text messages. No, and oh. the, the other memory that I mean, kind of ties into this is that. Uh, first summer after my freshman year, um, I went back home and did uh, uh, college courses at Kilgore Community College. And um, and then so my we only had one computer in the house and it was right next to my parents bedroom. And my dad is like the lightest, lightest sleeper ever. So I'd, I'd come in like from work you know, it's late at night and I would want to get on chat to talk to all, you know, my college buddies, you know, that's how we communicated. And the sound of that modem was so oh, loud <laughs> that it would wake them up every time. And so. Oh, anyway. and the pipe in the. Yeah. 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 Piping so, sound as well. Yeah. So sneaking, sneaking and, and look, we barely had running water where I lived, but, and so when I went to like my rich friend's houses, 
that had these dial-up modems, and they and their parents like you can only be on this for thirty minutes. So I'm like, oh man, uh, <laughs> like the, the internet. We were we we. I, I I believe our generation, we're the most lucky because we grew up our formative years. We grew up as social kids. You had to go ride your bikes. You had to go play on the streets. You had to be involved in activities. But we're not too old where we don't remember. We we were the first. We were the first uh, generation to really use the internet uh, for social reasons, right? For academic reasons. Mm -hmm. uh, so we straddle both of these worlds where we know how cool the internet is, but we also know how cool it was uh, to throw in a VHS tape that you found under your dad's bed uh, that, that was magical, if you will. Uh, so, so we didn't have the internet for 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 those sorts of deviant needs. Uh, I, I think that we are we're the luckiest uh, generation alive because we both we both grew up in this age of innocence, in age of community, but we also uh, were at the very beginning in our developed minds. We were at the very beginning. Of figuring out what the internet was and what it could could be used for. Oh yeah, for sure. And the way that's and this was kind of another thing. It was interesting to see, you know, because I wasn't aware of all these groups that had started online, you know, uh, bashing on Barney and stuff like that. Uh, but and I I, I didn't want to give it like. I almost thought it was giving those guys a little bit too much credit of, you know, breeding this hate culture on the internet, because I'm sure that was like one of many different things, but it, it really, it did click a little light bulb of like, Oh my gosh. Yeah. This is definitely kind of the seeds of that. And the fact that somebody could, could build this community over something. So, you know, minimal of hating on a purple dinosaur. And uh, so, yeah, it's, it, it, it's it's sad to say I don't know how far we've really come uh, since those early days, but right. yeah. <laughs> but uh, well. So what's what's your uh, overall like opinion of this movie? Is this something you would suggest people uh, you know subscribing for at least a month <laughs> to watch? Or yeah, uh, I'm happy. You know what? I'm actually going to keep that Peacock subscription. Good. Uh, because the Rosa Parks documentary is airing on Peacock. And I know the people who are producing that, Soledad Abroad and her company, they do brilliant work. And so I'm going to watch that before I let uh, before I let that membership expire. So this was worth it. I'm probably not going to send you a receipt just yet. It's <laughs> still out. Um, but uh, I, I'm, 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 I'm very happy that I was able to watch that. We do this thing here in Las Vegas with our group of friends. We call it Docking Crot, where we show a documentary and we make a meal in a crock pot that oh. corresponds with that documentary. Like, for instance, the documentary Wiener on Congressman Anthony Wiener, mm -hmm. we made smoky wieners that night <laughs> in the crock pot. So, you get what I'm saying, Docking Crot? Yeah. This is definitely going to be one that we do for Docking Crot. 
But what meal would we make? <laughs> I don't like, know. <laughs> like dinosaur soup or something like that. Yeah, yeah. There's like, yeah, uh, maybe some kind of not alphabet soup, but I'm sure. Or there's like dino chicken nuggets. You know. Yeah, there you go. Dino yeah. chicken nuggets, <laughs> which, which is funny. We we showed the the great documentary Spellbound. If you guys have not seen that documentary Spellbound, mm -hmm. it is amazing. Uh, we did spellbound. We made alphabet soup, so that that corresponds. Yeah. Um, but uh, while I'm at it, I know this wasn't a question, but while I'm at it, uh, let me recommend some good documentaries. Some yeah, old do it. Um, spellbound mm -hmm. about the, the natural spelling bee is brilliant. Um, and there's one documentary that's also very brilliant. It's way before its time. And it takes place in Longview, Texas. Oh, yeah, for sure. Hands on a hard body. Oh, yeah, for sure. I love that documentary. Yeah. Uh, that is a fabulous, fabulous documentary. Um, and there's one called The King of Kong, which I like a lot. Oh, yeah, yeah. That one's really good, love too. Love The King of Kong. Um, and to the directors and the producers of Barney, like you guys had a great balance. It was very smart that you guys really dove into the time period in which the Barney universe was produced. And that was brilliant. Um, yeah. So hats off to the producers of this. Oh yeah, for sure. Definitely. Well, um, I, I appreciate you. Uh, I know you're, I know you're a busy man, you know, heading off to Florida soon. And I mean, it's a, uh, it's great to catch up uh, before we signed off. I, is there, I, is there anything you want to push out there or promote or, um, anything you want people to be aware of? Yeah, we're uh, two of my documentaries. One is called It Was Chaos. It, it's the story, I, I, my 30 second pitch, it's, it's the story of a nightclub in Las Vegas. $690 million was pumped into the revamp of the Palms Casino and this world-class nightclub. And it failed spectacularly within like eight months. And if you love the hubris of what brought down the WeWork uh, company, hmm. and you love the clumsiness that brought down the Fire Festival, this documentary is a mixture of both. Okay. And so I have some pretty cool stuff going on. Yeah, no, that, 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 is, that is very cool. Um, I have this podcast going on, so there's that. <laughs> going on. A family, right? <laughs> right, right. Well, uh, well, thanks for coming on. Uh, I always tell our listeners, uh, you can go to moviesorlife.com. We have all our old past, past episodes, movie reviews, uh, my written review on this movie, and more. Um, so it, it was really good to catch up with you. It's just crazy how long it's been, but because of the magic of the internet, we're just, you know, being we can do this very very easily it's nice See, the internet caught on it, it, it caught on thankfully we didn't have to do this through uh aol chat so <laughs> but I still would love to do we should we should do a show just over <laughs> AOL chat. well hey uh just if there's a, something you want to talk about just let let me know this was this was a lot of fun well the, the my next documentary comes out i want you to review it on this show okay awesome i won't review it I'll <laughs> review it and find someone really interesting to watch it with okay I, I would love to do that all right brother all right thanks have a good night all right thanks nate all right bye, bye.